Let's pray, and then we'll get looking at that. Father God, we thank you so much for our family and the incredible thing you've created in terms of human relationships. It's actually astounding when we think about it, what the, the connectivity between humanity and those that uh, are raised in our own homes and go forth and our parents and generation after generation. And we pray you'd help us to be wise in terms of our parenting, always in Christ's name, amen. Well, the psalmist writes, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Oh, that's why there's a quiver down here. I couldn't figure that out. Children have a place of great importance in the Bible. I mean, great importance. And the Bible's impact on culture with regard to children has been phenomenal. I mean, it's really indescribable if you really sit there and think about it. I mean, the slow march of civilization to the place where children, I mean, all children are seen as individuals of worth in need of love and protection can totally be credited to the, to the Bible. Um, yeah, people have always loved their children, but people have also very easily sold their own children into slavery when times got hard, um, used them for economic advancement, offered them on burning altars to their false gods. I mean, people have done amazing things with children. They still find buried uh, tiny babies in the cornerstones of ancient buildings That's a, as, as a sacrifice for, to keep the building up, you know? Our text today in Matthew is brief but far-reaching in its implications. It says a lot about our, our Lord and as it reveals him, it gives us a standard by which we can measure ourselves in terms of his attitude towards children. The image of Jesus receiving children and them sitting on his lap and those kind of things, it's, it's just a popular thing in songs and there's so much artwork that uh, appears in church walls, right? Um, with him loving the children. It's really shaped our world, uh, just this little brief passage our conception of children. It's why the church puts such a big emphasis on family and children's work. So let's look at the text. It's Matthew chapter 19, verse 13. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. So he's describing children being brought to him. Those would be parents bringing children, just like we saw today in our own service. Matthew's decision to include this, it's really interesting. It fits really nicely with his big theme. You know, his whole theme is Jesus is training the disciples. And it also dovetails rather beautifully, this passage, with the previous paragraph dealing with God's view of marriage. Remember what he when he talked about marriage and what it really is and the disciples kind of wigged out. So God invented family. It's the first human institution. It remains the center of human flourishing. The disciples are not at all in tune with that uh, grand reality. In fact, when they, hear, when they hear Jesus' strict doctrine prohibiting divorce under almost any circumstances except very rare ones, 
They're ready to forget marriage altogether. Remember back there, they said it's better not to marry. Wow, if you're stuck. And Jesus has to remind them that marriage is quite normal and a, a contented celibate life is a gift from God that not everyone has. So the disciples being disinclined to marry with commitment is not a good thing. It doesn't say good about them. It means that they really don't even get it. That's how far first century Israel was from God's plan. I mean, they just let so many other ideas creep in and their own cultural ideas and even religious ideas because the rabbis totally supported the crazy, crazy divorce culture that they had. So they don't fare very well in their thinking about marriage and they don't fare very well in today's story either. I mean, they're forbidding parents to bring their children to Jesus to be blessed, rebuking them. That's what the word's used here. And we aren't told why they're doing it. I'd love to say, um, you know, Andrew, what do you got? What's the problem you have with that actually? And, and get some response to that. But probably they thought they were protecting Jesus' time. That's my, my guess, that they were being proactive and not, let's not bother Jesus with something as unimportant as blessing children. I think that's probably what was in their heads. Well, they've already forgotten that Jesus doesn't waste time with humans. He, he chooses to use his time to be with people and to bless them. They still haven't quite figured that out. But it just shows how children were kind of unimportant in, in, in that culture and for them. So the parents in this story, even though they're not named or even told how many there are or anything about them, they're the ones that are on to something. They're the ones that know, uh, that have a strong sense anyway of who Jesus is and that his blessing on their children would be a very, very good thing. So, you know, a child from the moment it's born has needs, right? Um, anybody that's raised a child knows that. They need nourishment, they need care, they need love, and they need Jesus. They need Jesus because every child is born to a lost race, a fallen humanity. We are a race of fallen creatures. So every child needs a savior and every child needs to be told about the savior from a responsible, godly person and be led to him. That these parents should seek the blessing of Christ speaks well of them. It's the disciples that really couldn't be bothered. And uh, Jesus could be bothered because his compassion is endless. And you see that over and over again in the Gospels. Do not hinder the children from coming to me, he says. So that's kind of a firm principle for parenting, I think, isn't it? Do not hinder the children from coming to me. So I don't think it's stretching it to ask ourselves this morning how we might hinder children from coming to Jesus. And what does it mean to bring a child to Jesus? Uh, how do we do that? What should we be on the lookout for in ourselves that might hinder them? It's very easy for parents to hinder their children from coming to Jesus. So I want to talk about that. And I want to start with some negative things from Scripture and then we'll kind of look at it in a more, more positive light. But there are things we can do that really do hinder kids from following Christ or knowing him. One, the first one we'll talk about is um, one of Jesus' favorite words in Matthew's gospel to talk about um, the condition of people in his days, and that's the word hypocrisy. We've talked about hypocrites. <laughs> Goodbye, Moira, your work is done. <clears throat> Hypocrisy, and that means what? 
The word hypocrites we talked about in Greek is the word actor, right? So a hypocrite is somebody that pretends to be something and is something really quite different. I used to do some acting in my day, in high school. Won a little statue for my great performance and some wretched play, no. But you know, you, you take on some role and you're, you can be a whole different person, right? Well, some people live like that. Especially in church environments. It's really easy to come to church and have a church face and a kind of a pious way about you and gracious and nice. And you know, ever, listen, look, ever fight in the car on the way to church with the family? And then you gotta come in and, huh? I mean, that's kind of a little version of hypocrisy. But I mean, if that's like, if there's like major war going on all the time and you just come in and pretend like there's never anything wrong, that's not a good thing. You know, you don't want to pretend. You don't want to pretend. Hypocrisy isn't being weak or failing because we all fail, right? Everybody fails. Not everybody's a hypocrite. So you don't want to call yourself a hypocrite because you fail to live up to the expectation of perfection, which is a fine thing to strive for, but none of us are anywhere close to that. Nobody's perfect. We all slip up. We all are weak. But hypocrisy is really a, a willful, persistent contradiction between what you say and what you do, what you want people to think about you and who you really are. Children, as they start thinking for themselves, start picking up on phoniness. You know, when they, they talk about, um, there's a lot of reasons for it. They talk about the loss of young people today. Um, churches are generally shrinking all over the, the, the country. Um, and why that is, younger people are sort of not going to church at much anymore. As soon as they leave home, they stop. Some of them come back, obviously. But it's kind of, it is kind of a trend. It's a concerning trend. And why, why is it? I, honestly, I think because there's a lot of phoniness in churches, and I think people pick up on that. If there's got to be an authentic uh, Christianity. And I think the whole performance thing and entertainment thing, and um, that kind of... That kind of fades, you know, that's only got so much value to attract people, and then they kind of go, they kind of see through that, and that's just not where it's at, it's got to be a real thing, so the Sunday smiles, the false piety, dancing and, and all this kind of stuff, and then, and then being a totally different person um, at another time, that's just hypocrisy, and if a child sees that in a family, or among leaders of the church, or respected people in the church, if they see hypocrisy, and I don't mean that somebody lost their temper one time or anything like that. I'm talking about genuine, flat-out hypocrisy. They, they pick up on that, and they don't want it. Who would want that? So that's something that hinders children from coming to Christ. Now, some kids are kind of naive, and they don't get it, what's going on when they see hypocrisy, it, but it causes this sort of tension in their mind. But some kids see right through it, and they become very cynical. And the children who don't understand what they're seeing, they just become confused. I mean, it's really hard to exaggerate the importance of dad and mom and other important adults in a child's world. You can't exaggerate the importance of parents and other, other adults in a child's world. They are like little gods in, in importance. Children clearly don't worship them. Mine certainly never did. But... Um, <laughs> But they do really depend on and look up to them. I mean, that, that really is a real thing. And they're the, I mean, hey, those big people, they're the source of life's necessities. They're the source of comfort, security, joy, um, things I need to eat, things I need to wear, my schedule, all of those kind of things. They seem, they seem to have all knowledge, you know. And um, 
they, they legislate, they enforce. Uh, usually there's a lot of love there, usually. Uh, there's a sort of a safe place with them. They provide, they protect, they teach. And God designed the world to be just like that. I mean, a child's mind elevates key adults, especially parents, above all other things. That's how they start off. So hypocrisy in an adult, in an adult that's in a place of importance in a child's life, that, that's, that provides them with a really wrenching, horrible choice. I mean, the, and in a Christian home, the, the child hears that the Bible says this, but mom and dad, or either one of them, do that. And that's just like, that's a hard thing. Difficult thing. And, and I'm not talking about a lapse, I'm talking about choices. You know, they see these choices that are completely contrary to what they know is right. It's, it's a joy for them to do this thing. It's a preference for them to do this thing that the child knows is wrong. So what does that do? Well, for a child who idolizes their parents, hypocrisy makes them have to choose because love is given to them and so it either is going to affirm what they're doing and reject what the Bible says or it's going to create this incredible, painful tension in their heart and that hinders a child from living for Christ. They have to choose between love and loyalty to their parents and love and loyalty to God's word. You should never make your child have to choose that difference. They should be so in sync. Loving your parents should be exactly the same as loving God and loving scripture. It should be, in a, for in a child's world, that's what should be presented. They should be on so much on the same page that a child says, oh yeah, my parents love God and love scripture. I love God and I love scripture. There's no space there. Now, are parents perfect? No. But what do imperfect parents do? Acknowledge their imperfections. That's part of following Christ too, right? Yes, I'm imperfect. I'm sorry. I wronged you. For a parent to say that to a child is okay. I was wrong. Um, all of that. We're all going to do better. Let's help each other do better. That's all good. But to choose sin freely, openly, without remorse, and then say they're Christians, that's, oh, it's terrible. So hypocrites in authority overthrow the Bible's authority because they behave like it really isn't true. I mean, that's really what the message is. Well, you believe that and you go to church and everything, but you live this way, so you must not really believe it's true. And so I'm not going to believe it's true either. So the child may never grasp the authority of the Bible because they've never really seen it modeled in the people that matter. So if parents behave like there's no God that sees them, the child's going to assume there's no God that sees anybody, right? He must not be there. So parents actually make theology in the mind of a child by their conduct. When we don't forgive, we say that there doesn't need to be forgiveness. When we are dishonest, the Bible's moral principles don't apply to us. When we divorce willy-nilly, they learn that love is never lasting. It's not lasting. There's nothing permanent about love. And when they read otherwise in the Bible, somewhere deep inside, there, there's going to be a voice that says, it's not true. It's, the Bible's just not true. And hypocrisy makes the truth unbelievable in young minds. 
That's, it's an immature understanding. Yes, it is an immature thing, but I'm, we're talking about children, right? And children don't have a mature understanding. So these are the kind of conclusions they're drawing. They might not even consciously draw them, but that's what's going on. The mature mind says, well, some people are hypocrites, and that's, I just happen to have hypocrites for parents. So uh, that shouldn't affect my relationship to God or the Bible at all. That's what a mature mind might say. But in a child's mind, it's a pattern of life that's helping define reality for them. So they're looking for a truth to rely on. And hypocrisy eliminates some things from consideration in when they're looking for truth. It says, well, there's not going to be found there. That's how an immature mind works. Second thing would be, um, so hypocrisy is one. Injustice is another one. Arbitrary, cruel, unfair discipline, right? Drunken rages, beatings for no reason, all that kind of stuff. I know most parents just seem cruel to their kids, right? All of us are unjust when our kids are mad at us, right? But um, when there is justice, when they grow up and as they start to mature, they're going to see that. I mean, my parents used a belt. Still feel, amen. (laughs) And you know what? I really deserved it. Like 99% of the time, I absolutely deserved it. Was I happy at the time? Was I concerned with justice? No, but um, but looking back, I mean, it was totally just what, what they did. And they didn't use it out of control, but it was carefully applied. <laughs> I couldn't sit down. Okay. Paul says uh, in Ephesians, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That not provoking part is really important. Some people forget that. And they jump right to discipline and instruction and all that. Don't provoke them to anger. Don't be unjust. Don't be unfair. Don't be cruel. Injustice is a major form of provoking. Provoking. He says, don't do that. Another one. Um, so we talked about hypocrisy, injustice, absenteeism. You don't have to do anything bad. You can just do nothing as a parent. Nothing, nothing suits Satan just fine. As long as there's nothing, he's very happy. Because the natural disposition of human beings is to rebel and go towards evil. I mean, so if there's nothing going on, that's just the path a child's going to go on. If Christ is ignored, he must not be real. That's the logical conclusion in a child's mind. So a child already has a predisposition to rebellion and sin. We're all children of our first parents. We all have this anti-God bent um, kind of built into us. Wickedness has a genuine appeal for us in some form. And if we leave it alone, nature will not run to Christ. Human nature does not do that. It will run in its own way. So just be too busy or too distracted or too uninvolved, and that will keep a child from Jesus too. That's a hindrance. So hypocrisy. Oh, here's a a fourth one. Just flat-out worldliness. Just flat-out worldliness. We mentioned fairly recently here that the Christian home is to be something of a sanctuary from the world. Not in terms of keeping sinners out. Our homes actually should be places of ministry in important ways. But um, but I'm talking about feeding on the world's delights, right? How does John describe worldliness? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That, that and all the stuff that's tangled up with all of that should be kept out of a Christian home. If sinful things become a source of delight and excitement, 
Don't be surprised if something subtle and deep and beautiful like Jesus gets crowded out by that stuff because that's way more alluring and enticing to people that are already predisposed to evil. Goodness gets shoved aside. It's definitely worth thinking about that. The Apostle John in that same passage said, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And those words to just put a check on a genuine believer, right? How do, how, how do I know, how do I know that I love God? Well, one of the ways you know is I prefer him over the world. He's better. I prefer him. It's not even a contest. I love him. And whatever he hates, well, I'm going to hate that too. If you know who Doug Wilson is, no relation to the famous AFBC Wilsons. <clears throat> He's a Christian thinker who says some really um, brilliant, eloquent things and some really dumb things sometimes. So, um, so I don't totally recommend him, but he said some really wonderful things in a book about marriage that I want to read to you. It's about marriage and family. He says, each family is designed to be a culture with a language, customs, traditions, and countless unspoken assumptions. God has made the world in such a way that children who grow up in the culture of a family are to be shaped and molded by it. The duty of the husband and father is to ensure that the shaping is done according to the standards of the word of God. So he's saying that's how it's supposed to be. And then he says, but consider two possible problems. The first occurs when a husband and wife establish a very real culture in their family, but because of their sin and rebellion, it's a rebellious culture. In such a case, children are simply brought up under the wrath of God. Unless the grace of God intervenes, the sins of the fathers are visited upon subsequent generations. So he's really talking about unbelievers there. The second problem, far more common among modern Christians, is that of forgetting that the family is a culture at all and allowing, by default, outside cultural influences to take primacy in how the children are shaped. You hear what he's saying there? When the biblical cultural mandate for the home is abandoned in the home, the vacuum will not be there for long because this is a fallen world. Those who take over the process of shaping the children will always be scoundrels and fools. And he's exactly right. Internet, movies, television, um, music, radio, I mean, are, are those wise people that are creating those stories? Are they, are they the most honorable people we can think of that are founts of wisdom and goodness? And, or, or are those scoundrels and fools that, that feed? I mean, sure, there's some good stuff, but it's mostly scoundrels and fools. Even Plato talked about this in Greece years ago. The stories we tell our children are everything, and who tells them is really important. So that's what he's talking about there, that kind of thing. You, you, if you don't build up a, a biblically-based culture, you're handing your children to scoundrels and fools and letting them teach them what is good, worthy, honorable, and right, which is usually something twisted, perverse, sensual, and wrong. Except love is better than money. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the one thing that uh, Hollywood still gets right sometimes. Love, fam family's more important than having lots of money. Well, you know, okay, we all get that lesson. You're not gonna have lots of money anyway, so don't even worry about that. Christian dads and moms always seem to be surprised when the world claims their kids after scoundrels and fools have been given 18 years of direct access to their minds. And it, it, it still amazes me. 
Oh, you're surprised. No. Technology is, is kind of a satanic dream. Now we even give them portable devices. They can, they can take scoundrels and fools to bed with them. They can be in connection with scoundrels and fools 24 hours a day. That's what happens. And then we're surprised. The Christian home, the Christian family, Christian conversation should be that rare place where this sinful world is out of place. It just doesn't fit us. It's not part of what we do. Paul says in Ephesians 5, there must be no filthiness. Walk as children of light. That's what he says. So light is a dispeller of darkness, not a welcomer, welcomer of darkness, right? Don't be overcome by it, Paul says. So give the Christian child a, a memory of a place in the world where love prevails, where God's word is honored, where fun is innocent, where goodness is just sort of overflows in everything that we do. That's, that's the home a child should be raised in. Because it's not gonna be like that when they go out there. But if they have a memory that, you know, there is a place like that. There is a place like that. It'd be a good thing for them. The church, well, Let's talk about the home versus the church. So the Christian home is God's creation. It's the smallest microcosm. You know that word microcosm? It means little world. That's what it means, a little world. The, the home is, is the smallest microcosm of the kingdom of God. And then after that, the next largest microcosm of the kingdom of God is the church. And that's the church family. That's why you were included in this baby dedication today. The church is the next largest little world where the kingdom of God should be experienced and hopefully experienced in faithfulness, love, mercy, holiness, honor, goodness, and all of those things. That's why we all have this incredible responsibility to the children amongst us. We all pledge to be that today. I don't know, some of you might not have pledged it. You might have just kept your mouth shut. But most of us pledged to be that for a child. So hypocrisy, injustice, absenteeism, and worldliness, those are things that can hinder a child coming to Jesus. And that shouldn't be in a home, and it should not be in a church either. We should be living for him. Now, can God overcome all of those things when they're there? Yeah, you, you bet he can. He can save people who've had every disadvantage. But how wretched it is to work against him, to make it harder for a child, to put a stumbling block in a child's way. Well, let's talk about the right things to do. We talked about all the wrong things to do. So what, what smooths the path for a child to come to Jesus? What kind of parent is actually bringing their child to Jesus? Well, the right things to do, first of all, is just live an authentic Christian life. And that doesn't mean a perfect life because all of us sin. So part of being authentic is recognizing our own sin and dealing with it and confessing it. It's the opposite of hypocrisy. So live for Christ yourself. Let your children see you as a person of faith and compassion and holiness. None of us are perfect, but where do you turn in your imperfection? They should see that too, to repentance, seeking wisdom from God, when problems arise, let them see you solve your problems by biblical principles. Let them notice that you have the glory of God as sort of a driving motive in your life, in your heart. The great commandment, what's the great commandment? Anybody remember? 
to love God, right? And that should radiate from what we do, this love of God, how we talk, how we work, how we play. We love God, and that love must be the center of the Christian home, not, not just rules and standards, as important as those things are. They're not the first thing. First thing the child should perceive is mom and dad love God. They love him. So what we do is going to flow out of that love for God. That's how a Christian home should operate. Don't manipulate. Don't use God as a weapon or a tool of control over anyone. There are some very insecure people that do that. They, um, they, they use God as a way of controlling other people. That's, that's, that's not what we're talking about. Just love him in your heart. Secondly, along the same lines, a children needs to see a parent that's obedient to Christ. It's, it's always a tragedy when parents raising their children with strict principles exempt themselves from those principles. We want them to obey when we don't obey the Lord. I mean, that's, why aren't you obeying? Well, why aren't you obeying? We work to have our authority respected and we don't respect ourselves the highest authority. So what do they see in us? That's the big question. And part of that surely is having them see us be big enough and honest enough to say, you know, I've been very wrong about this. We're going to work on that. You help me. So we do have faults. It's healthy for them to see us, admit them, make changes, be honest. Third, we need to pray for our children. I think we want to do that, but we often don't do that enough. That's got to be like a central thing is praying for our children. Remember Job? Now, in the Old Testament, it says there were three super righteous men, like above others, uniquely righteous. Not perfect, sinful still, but uniquely righteous. One of them is Job. Job as a model parent. We always think of Job as the sufferer, right? But he was a model parent. He sets an excellent example he cared deeply about the spiritual condition of his children. And what you see in Job chapter 1, verse 5, it's right at the beginning of the book. There's a father, you see a father assuming spiritual responsibilities for his children. It says, when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all, number of his children. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. They don't do it publicly. I've never heard them do it. But what if, what if their hearts are bad? So he offered sacrifices for his children on their behalf all the time, praying for them, just in case their heart was wrong. He prays for them, offers sacrifices for them. So we need to pray for our children. Most of all, that they would receive the grace of salvation and that they would love God. So we need to pray for the decisions that they make for their integrity, their honesty, their interest in Christ's kingdom, their devotion to God's moral law, all of those things we need to pray for. We need to pray for their spouses. Somebody's going to marry that beautiful little girl that was down here and uh, we need to start praying for her husband. We've got to pray for her future husband, yeah. And um, now, he's probably crawling around somewhere himself. <laughs> but all the world wants him, the devil wants him. We've got to pray for that kid. We need to pray for our children's future spouses. Implore heaven 
implore heaven for blessings on your children. Just as these dear folks in Matthew 19 sought to bring the blessings of Christ on their children. And then last and probably the most important thing um, just straight out of scripture is instruct them in the ways of God. I mean, Deuteronomy 6, it's always read in these situations, but let me read it because it, it's to us. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. So there's what's called the Shema in Israel culture. That's the most important verse amongst the Jews right there. Um, They don't understand it anymore because they've lost sight of what God has done for them in Christ. But you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And right after that it says, you shall teach them diligently to your sons. And talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What? What? These words which I'm commanding you. They should be just filling your entire life. It's not just, oh, let's sit down on Tuesday night and have a little Bible study in the family. That would be great if you did that. But that's... It's when all through the life, you're just bringing in scripture and God's perspective on everything that goes on around you. You teach your kids all the time, in, during, through life. Life is observation and explanation. That's how Jesus is dealing with the disciples. He sees something or something happens, he uses it as a teachable moment to explain some great truth to them. Applying scripture demonstrating a principle, explaining temptations, admiring virtues, pointing out the consequences of choices made. Scripture and all of its requirements are to be so much a part of us that this daily conversation just flows from a biblically informed mind and they benefit from that. Remember Ephesians 6, 4 again, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, now here's the other part, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, discipline and instruction. Those are typical words used of education. Educate your children in the Lord, that's all it means. Children are to grow up in an an environment of respect for God's word all the time, in all the doings of life. That's a parent's duty, and particularly a father's responsibility according to this text here. So listen, it's a huge mistake to depend on Sunday school teachers or youth leaders to nurture the souls of your children in the things of God. You can't read Deuteronomy 6 like this. This is my new translation. This is the new Wayne translation. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God and the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart and you shall hire someone to teach them to your sons. 40 minutes on Sunday morning and on Friday nights in youth group. That's not what it says. Whose responsibility is it? It's dad's. He's the one that needs to make sure it happens. Sunday school is great. I love it. I love hearing Taylor teach in Sunday school. Youth group is great because it helps children recognize the, the, the next largest microcosm of the kingdom of God, the church. It helps them learn about church and that, oh, we have to interact with these other people and help them grow and grow under their tutelage. And yeah, it's more than just family. Yeah, that's right. 
It gives them a place where they can exercise what they learn at home in a context that is reasonably safe and with some kind of oversight, proper spiritual oversight. And church, children's ministries are a great tool in growing and stretching a little bit outside the home, the family. It's a reasonably safe place to practice the faith that kids learn at home and experience what the Bible calls the body of Christ, church, outside the family unit. But the foundation is the home. I mean, that's where it starts. You teach them, Moses says, diligently. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. One of the blessings of Sunday school is so mom and dad can receive more information themselves in Sunday school to do that, to give it to their kids later. I know a lot of you benefit from that hour. But don't lean on the church to do a job that only a parent can do. You just can't rely on that. That's, n- that's too little time. It's just too little time. What Moses is describing is when you r- lie down, when you rise up. Oh, where was the pastor when you rose up this morning? Well, well he wasn't even here. He must have been at his house. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, we can't do that. Where was the Sunday school teacher when you were walking by the road? Oh, they were probably walking by their own road. I don't know, but, you know, you can be there, but we, they can't be there. That, that 40, hour, 40 minutes and that hour, or, that's not enough. It's got to be all day, and that's the parent's task to do that. You've got to do it. You've got to do it. Children are born sinners, but they are moldable, and they're pliable. And God designed the family as the primary sphere of nurturing. That's why it's so important. So the church does exist to help you, equip you, teach you, pray with you, but the job is yours, parent. Family is the first institution. It's been there since the very beginning. The church came after Christ, right? That's the redemptive institution. Both are essential parts of the divine plan. And part of what church does is keep parents focused and accountable to God by insisting on their follow-up, doing what I'm doing right now, encouraging you, challenging you offering you help if you need it. So lead the children to Jesus Christ. Show them the way at home and do it openly. Don't hinder them. Teach them humility. Teach them honor. Teach them transparency. Those are all good things. But most of all, teach them the excellency of Christ. That's your first great objective. His worthiness. And that's where we tend to fall short. We kind of focus on the moral principles because they're always blowing it. Remind them over and over that Jesus is the best thing that has ever existed in the world. By far, the human mind cannot think upon anything more wonderful than him. Nothing compares. He is worthy of our greatest love. Those are the things we owe our kids to to know that, that we think that way, and that we live out that respect for him and love for him. That's our first calling. It's even more important than soccer, and it's even more important than getting into a prestigious university, that they know how wonderful Christ is. It's it's the main thing. Don't hinder them. Lead them to Jesus. Now, look, like the proverbial horse led to water, you can't make them drink, right? But you can make sure that they know the water is there and that it's good water, 
it's the best water in the whole universe, then they need to decide, but don't hinder them. Let's pray. Our great God, you are so wise. You've told us all we should do. Now help us to do it. Make us, make us uncomfortable until we do. Humble us, direct us. Put us on our knees for our children. Rule our hearts every day, rule our hearts. Let us take our failures honestly and simply repent of them and put us on a path of wisdom and faithfulness. You've given us everything we need to do this well and we humbly ask for strength to see it through. In Christ's name we pray, amen.